Your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, yet they belong not to you. You may give them your love, but not your thoughts, for they have their own thoughts. You may house their bodies, but not their souls, for their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. You may strive to be like them, but seek not to make them like you, for life goes not backward, nor tarries with yesterday. You are the bows from which your children, as living arrows, are sent forth. The archer sees the mark upon the path of the infinite, and he bends you with his might, that his arrows may go swift and far. Let your bending in the archer's hand be for gladness, for even as he loves the arrow that flies, so he loves also the bow that is stable. Khalil Gibran. Welcome to The Lost Traveler. I'm your host, Henry Cameron Allen, and today we have Robin Atkins, LMHC who is a self-described reluctant therapist and mother of four. <laughs> um, welcome, Robin. We're very, very excited to have you today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to join you. Thanks. Thanks. We're, we're, I'm particularly interested in your take on pandemic parenting, is what I'm calling it. Um, <laughs> It's quite a unique time uh, in history to be a parent and, you know, with your professional background and that includes many, many different things. And um, I listed your your trail of, of amazing degrees uh, in your bio, but, um, but specifically family therapy and and, you know, how do how do families uh, get through this time with their kids? I know that. A lot of a lot of parents are struggling right now, not only with homeschooling, um, but also dealing with the way their children are handling this particular time and not knowing what the outcomes are going to be. Well, I just think parenting in general is filled with struggles. And one of the things that I find that is unique to our time in history, even before coronavirus was the impact of social media on parenting. So if you're a parenting struggling with a particular issue, you have a plethora of information available at your fingertips, which is wonderful, but you also have a plethora of opinions on what a quote, good parent unquote is. And I think that that can make parenting even harder because one person's standards may be impossible for another person, depending on their situation, where they live, income, history, generational poverty, all kinds of influences can change what is possible for one parent and uh, to another. And so you add coronavirus onto that, and it just kind of compounds all of those pre-existing conditions, but adds an element of we are all forced into the present right here right now we can't look too far into the future because we have no idea what that looks like anymore right well and and i'm sure that um cultural background 
compounds it as well. I, I experienced it in my own family growing up, uh, you know, where I had uh, one set of grandparents that was pretty conservative and the others were pretty liberal. And that definitely affected my, my parents' uh, ability to meet parenting. And, um, and I think that's universal. That's, that's absolutely right. The, globally, we are experiencing so many different uh, challenges at every turn. And this just compounds it all, doesn't it? Absolutely. I, I absolutely agree that culture has a large part to do with how each individual parents, even two individuals coming together to parent together, both with their unique upbringing will have different cultural takes on how to parent. And now you have to blend those two together. Um, and adding to all of that epigenetics, I think we're at a really unique point in history when we know about epigenetics. And we also know that a current global crisis is going to impact generations after us. So as parents, we have a very unique opportunity to use good coping skills and model those for our children to hopefully impact future generations of survivors um, rather than compounded trauma. How does someone who is completely in the woods um, go about gaining those skills when we are, as you say, we're in isolation right now. Uh, it's, it's, and, and there's so much information accessible globally you know, unless you're living in a, 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 a hut in the middle of the rainforest and don't have an internet connection, you know, we're talking mostly first and second world, you know, that have access to, to online research. Where do you suggest people go for, for the development of these skills? That's a really good question. And the last thing I want to do is be another blog or voice saying this is how you must parent because that's definitely not going to be helpful um i would suggest that within each parent they already have those skills it just might have not been talked about in a way they recognize that trauma can carry on genetically throughout generations and i'll just give you a really brief story um of a friend of mine another therapist who had a client a little girl who was really, really afraid of elephants. And there was no reason they could find in her own life to justify that. She had never even been around one, nor has she seen any scary movies or read any scary books about elephants. I don't even think she had seen Dumbo. Mm. But um, when they did certain therapeutic techniques, they discovered that in her history was family members that were part of the Holocaust and when they were entering gas chambers, the masks that the so soldiers would wear looked like an elephant. Wow. The gas mask. And so like genetically, that was imprinted on D her DNA. And so this her fear. Yeah. This is a new frontier, isn't it? Epigenetics. It, it really just... is starting to scratch the surface about uh, the memory that we carry, the ancestral memory that we carry in our DNA and how that might inform uh, our, our individuality. 
Exactly, exactly. And so we're just now starting to scratch the surface on epigenetics, but it does give us parents who are existing through a global pandemic now the ability to understand that the way we manage this and the way we cope with this will have impacts on generations to come. And so how we choose to parent in this time can be authentic and real and give ourselves and our children and their children the tools to deal with future trauma. You know, I think it also gives us as parents the opportunity to invite our ancestral memories in because this is not the first time in human history that we have met a pandemic and parents have had to deal with these things many times in human history and that's all in our dna correct it? it is and how much that expresses itself is based on a lot of confounding variables so right. my ability to overcome maybe three generations back trauma that might have happened might have nothing to do with my current ability as far as coping skills goes, as much as how many other co-founding variables played out into who I am today. So I think awareness of family history is a beautiful thing and can give us a window into maybe some ways we became the way we are. But I don't want people to be afraid that if there's trauma in their family history, there's like a ticking time bomb ready to go off in their own world of that's going to come back and haunt them in some way. Right. That's not, that's not, not necessarily defining, the case. Not a defining factor. In other words. Correct. It's a, a variable, but not a prescription. Well, and, and you have to take into account people who are uh, adopted as well, who know nothing about their family history, nor could they. Exactly. And if you want to go down a path of a discussion regarding family preservation, I'd be more than happy to do that, but I could probably take up several hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're just going to have you back for another whole discussion. Um, I would love that. And we're going to take a brief pause right now to hear a word from our sponsor. Um, so so in, in the now, right? So what I'm hearing you say is that there are so many variables and there are so many different perspectives on parenting and only you know if you feel that you're a good parent and it's 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 really about the the unique constellation that your family is made up of there are people who are single parents there are people who are grandparents serving as parents there are guardians, you know, aunts and uncles, friends who are raising children as their own. Um, and then there are, there are parents who are together and, uh, and, and struggling. Um, those are all dynamics, as, as you said before, that are not new to the parenting experience. What in your experience as a mother of four of a range of ages is unique about this time? The first thing I will say unique about this time is I have been forced into the present moment constantly. And I, by nature, am a planner. 
and a forward thinker. So I'm about a year or two out in my planning for my family as well as myself. And this has forced me into the everyday right now um, because we don't know what the future is going to look like. We don't know three months from now, more or less two years from now. So that is an uncomfortable place for me to be. And I would say the first two weeks of quarantine, my nature of just survival, positive attitude, I tend to be an um, optimist, we're all going to be fine, kicked in. But after that initial kind of pull myself up by my bootstraps attitude wore off, I through a week of real despair about how am I going to do this every day. And that's when it actually occurred to me some of the underlying skills we all have by nature that just haven't at any other time in history that I'm aware of been talked about as assets. They've typically been talked about as weaknesses. Right. So, for example, my parents' generation, um, they were growing up in the 40s, 50s, 60s, was don't talk about problems, don't talk about hardships, don't talk about grief, don't talk about anything difficult. And so I was raised in that we don't talk about emotions, we don't talk about hard things. And I've realized right now in the present day, every moment, we have six different personalities living in my house <laughs> that are all experiencing this in six different ways. And that includes me. So the best thing I can do for my kids is to be honest with myself first about where I'm at. So kind of the first basic coping skill is acknowledging whatever emotions I'm having in the moment and just respecting that those emotions are natural. I don't think it's ever a good idea to place judgment on emotion as good or bad. That's right. Yeah. So just that being the first step of me acknowledging where I'm at and then having the awareness of no one else in my house might be in that same space. And this is kind of the second layer to me of what's so hard about parenting right now is how do I honor and give space for my own emotions without my children feeling like it is their job to make me okay. That is not their role. So how do I do that? So at first it was me just modeling for them. It's healthy to cry. It's healthy to go out and play a really hearty game of basketball where I get some aggression out against the backboard. It's healthy to scream into my pillow if I feel like, I'm just overwhelmed and model for them. Like this is the emotion I'm having right now and I'm taking care of it. And this is how I'm doing that. And then giving them the space to identify their emotions and show them how they can in a healthy way express them. Your generous sponsorship and individual support of the lost traveler podcast benefits the lost travelers club a charitable project under the fiscal sponsorship of United Charitable, a nonprofit 501c3 organization. The Lost Travelers Club focuses primarily on the needs of parents who have outlived their beloved children. We recently launched our new Brain Candy Project wing, providing art supplies to children still struggling with critical or terminal health-related conditions. We hope to raise enough funds to launch Brain Candy, an arts and literature magazine created by and for these young people. Find out more 
at www.braingandy.online. Thank you. And I know that something that has has crossed my mind quite a bit during this time is, you know, you talk about healthy expression. There are so many people around the world who are living, children who are living in homes where there is unhealthy expression of emotions and there is uh, a lashing out and and potentially violent situations uh, in the home. And for many of these kids, school is a refuge. It's an escape mm-hmm. from that world. And now they can't, they cannot escape from that world. And it's even compounded in some ways um, and, and potentially uh, even more dangerous. Um, how, do, how do we guide those families um, who, are, who are dealing with those unhealthy uh, emotional expressions right now? Wow, that is a really big question with a multifaceted answer. Yeah. Um, I would say, first, I want to just acknowledge some of my clients are teachers, and I'm watching them firsthand go through the anguish of knowing who their at-risk children are that they can't see every day. Right. And that is just a level of stress that I don't have. And so just being aware, I think the first thing is this shifts it from personal me as a parent of four children to a community point of view of as a community, who are the people in our lives and do we know if they're at risk? And if we know they're at risk, how do we best provide them support in that? So it could be as simple as I have a client who's a teacher who has a child that's at risk, but she knows that child loves the Harry Potter series. Mm -hmm. So even though that part of our city isn't doing any kind of remote or online learning because most of them do not have access to that. She is mailing a letter of, I know you're reading this book. And when we last talked, this was the chapter you were on. I'm wondering how that's going and how you're feeling about those characters and just trying to maintain connection, whether or not she ever gets a letter back, maintaining for that child. And hopefully the child is getting those letters. Right. Right. Um, Yeah, maintaining some kind of connection. Um, Our city is doing a wonderful job of school lunches are still free. Breakfast, school breakfasts are still free. And different parts of our city are doing either the buses do their normal bus routes and there are certain drop-offs along that bus route for all the students to be able to access meals or they're having a central location people can go to to get them. But in that way, the people that are serving the meals are the bus drivers or the teachers. And they're making those connections with their at-risk students that way. That's brilliant. Uh, and I, I hope that every city and town uh, is doing something similar. And I would encourage listeners who are uh, who don't know whether or not uh, those services are available in your communities um, to seek them out. Where might they go to find out? Would it be the school or social services in their city? So I found out about it on Facebook, of all places, because our 
school district has a Facebook page. And so that's where all that information was. But I imagine if they just call their school or if their school has a website they can access, they would be able to find out that information. Um, not all schools have people staffed right now to even answer phones. So I would hope that that school has some sort of online presence. Um, and I know some, it gets even more complicated than that because some towns libraries still aren't open. So if you don't have access to any kind of screen in your home to be able to get online and your library is closed, you can't get online, where do you access that? So then I would reach out to, do you know any other parents of any other students that could get that information for you? Right. And try to reach out to other parents. Um, one thing I would like to touch on too is these children that are in homes where they may be at risk, it's a really easy place for us as a society to slip in to see those parents as evil right. or bad. And what I see, having worked with the Department of Children's Services for four years, is parents that are in situations where we've always already kind of touched on in the beginning of this conversation of generational poverty or some kind of disparity or epigenetics going back multiple generations of abuse where there's circles and cycles of these things and they are desperately wanting to not be in the situation they're in both for themselves and their children and so i think as a society we have to completely change how we look at at-risk families and at-risk children and what a great and perfect opportunity we have by virtue of this crisis time when we are to a degree isolated and and given the opportunity to take a half step back and check out within ourselves, each of us, um, how we meet that in our communities and in our own lives and our own surroundings. I have uh, a lot of friends who, um, you know, are talking about those disparities right now and putting a face on institutional racism, for instance, and, um, mm -hmm. you know, other, other populations that have been, uh, systematically uh, controlled and diminished and uh, who may not have the same access as those that are privileged. And, um, you know, and, and, and I'm really glad that you're willing to talk about this. It, did, it wasn't expected that it would come up in this conversation, <laughs> but, but that's what I love about this podcast is that these are organic conversations. And when the impulse hits, there's a reason and and these are very important subjects to to address right now and um, and try and find together a way a way through uh, to another reality. Yeah, I think in general, a good place to come from is the acknowledgement that everybody has their own story, and whatever their outer appearance might be doesn't come near close to telling the entire story. And for me, acknowledging systemic racism or inherent racism or sexism was a journey just to even acknowledge it. I am currently a middle-class educated white woman. Mm -hmm. Now, 20 years ago, I was a homeless addict. Wow. So, just looking at my own, but see, even my own journey from homeless addict to middle-aged educated white woman, I 
had to acknowledge certain steps in there were possible because I'm white. Yes. And so even though I could sit here and say, well, yeah, I've been there. I've done that. Um, I had to acknowledge certain steps along the way I was inherently treated differently. And so I, I want part of my message to be absolutely it's possible. Restoration for anyone is possible. Restoration to wherever their healthy is, not my healthy, their healthy is. But I can't assume their path is going to be the same as mine or easy in the same ways or difficult in the same ways. So all of us just being aware that each journey is individual. And are you cultivating relationships where you are helping people on their journey? Right. That's a really important question. Mm -hmm. And we're going to take a brief pause right now to hear a word from our sponsor. Twenty-first century life skills warrant twenty-first century education. Every human being is born into a classroom, each of us given the same homework, the same core assignments. Personal care skills, emotional literacy, financial literacy, environmental literacy. These and other essential life skills are unique, learned and used by each of us every day of our lives. Indeed, they are the common thread in our humanity core to individuals and the communities they construct, surviving and thriving. Raising the bar on life skills education for all. This is the mission of Parenting 2.0. Visit www.parenting2pt0.org for more information. And and in terms of, of taking this to back to current day parenting right in the universal sense right anyone who is either themselves a parent or in the parenting generation meaning anyone who is of an age to uh that they would be capable of being a parent whether or not they have children of their own uh they are the generation that children are looking to for how to be in the world and and so in that sense we are all parents um all all adults how do we how do we meet that uh with our children um i think modeling as you said is a really important part of it um is it enough i think modeling is a good start because i think that's an innate place we all can get to like i can sit down for two minutes and acknowledge where i'm at and then find an appropriate way to model that and it doesn't have to be overthought or overdone. It, it right. should be organic and in the moment. So, for example, two weeks ago, I was crying. And my three-year-old, Mommy, why are you crying? Mommy's sad. Mommy, why are you sad? Mommy misses Gamma, our, my mother. Right. So just being authentic and in the moment and honest, it's not over-dramatized. It's not overproduced. It's not intentionally I'm going to teach a lesson. It's living real life with our children and seeing our children as unique individuals, not as silent observers, but unique individuals living this with us is a good place to start. And I would add that helping them identify what is solid in their life right now. So there's this game that we like to play with our kids when we're getting kind of sciencey and my son, 
my oldest son is on the autism spectrum and he's very interested in nonfiction. He has a really hard time with fiction. So we have this game, you know, what's a solid, what's a liquid, what's a gas, a science game. And he's really good now at identifying those things, but we can do that with emotions and thoughts as well. So like a solid would be a truth or a fact or a need that we have. Those would mm. be solids. So can you identify your truth, your fact, or your need right now? A liquid might be something that's like a belief or opinion or a core value you have. And so a liquid, if frozen, can become a solid um, or if heated can boil. So like my beliefs or my opinions, if I get overheated, those can boil over and cause damage. But if given enough time and enough study could eventually become a solid, a truth or a fact. But we can't just assume that our beliefs or opinions or core values are solids. And like a gas might be a thought or emotion or a want because gases naturally want to expand and take up all the space they can. They they are less um solidified even than liquids they just want to expand and our emotions and thoughts want to take up all the space more than we will even let them if we if we let them go on their free reign they will take up everything our thoughts our emotions and our wants so we have to be able to identify wait that's a thought but i don't have to choose to entertain it or that's an emotion but i can choose to express it in a healthy way and then refocus on a different emotion and or that's a want but not really a need and i should probably meet this need rather than entertain this want so kind of bringing that i know that was a lot to take in but bringing that back to identifying what's a solid a liquid or a gas as far as emotions thoughts wants is a really easy way for my child on the spectrum who needs nonfiction to relate to that well every child is a unique learner right and <laughs> and this is a tool that i had not yet heard um i encourage people listening um because that was so beautiful and and well expressed um this podcast is going to stay in perpetuity so you can always go back and listen to that part again you can rewind and listen to it again um and again and again um i I think that that that's an amazing perspective and and that is what i'm trying to bring forward these, these are tools to meet, you know, not, not every child is going to learn the same way. Not every parent's going to parent the same way. And it's that, that marriage of, of unique qualities, um, that perfect storm, if you will, of, of unique personalities coming together, that constellation, um, that is your family, um, that will, that will find its way as it has through generations uh, to meet the other side of this whenever and whatever it is. Yeah. And I think it's important for people to know too, I failed my children as well. All human beings fail at things, including parenting, but failure isn't the problem. The problem is when we don't acknowledge it. And so part of the best lessons I teach my kids is when I get it wrong. And then I say, Hey, you know what, buddy? I am so sorry. I handled that in a way I'm not proud of, or I think I could have done that better or different. Can we try again? And giving them the same opportunity. 
we ha we do do-overs in our house quite frequently when a child has a tantrum and um then is taking a time out or a time in depending on how we're managing it and do you want to do over do we want to practice that again because we're all practicing being human nobody has perfected being human so okay. do you want to do it again well and that's a relatively new perspective in parenting isn't it yeah i think most of us grew up in households that well at least in america i, I can't speak for other cultures because i'm not nearly educated enough to do that in america most of us grew up in either authoritative or lackadaisical households. And this idea of children should be seen and not heard, or children should be attended to, to the point of overindulgence, rather <laughs> than we're living together, trying to do life together. Right, or do as I say, not as I do. Right. And there's also a long history, and this is global. I've witnessed it uh, all over the world. Um, parents resorting to corporal punishment uh, as as a form of discipline. Um, what's your perspective on that? That's a great question. And my perspective has changed in the 12 years I've been a parent. Um, with my first two children, I did do a bit of corporal punishment. And even right now, sitting here, I want to say, yeah, but it was only like three times their entire lives because I feel so bad about it. Um, yeah. I, the way I look at corporal punishment now is teaching my child not to do something because I hit them isn't actually going to teach them not to do that thing. It's going to teach them to either fear me or believe that hitting reinforces control or power. For decision making. And so I don't personally endorse corporal punishment. Um, and I've had people talk to me, well, what about that time that your kid is running towards the busy street and they're two and they, they want to just keep repeatedly running towards the busy street? Won't that shock them out of doing that? And maybe, maybe it would, and maybe they would never even remember that one time you spanked them. But to me, shouldn't we then be addressing how are we getting in this situation in the first place and try to find a different way of playing outside or talking about well, that? I, I've, I've always been of the feeling that when an adult strikes a child, it is much more about the adult and their uh, toolkit in, in handling their anger and frustration than it is at all about the behavior of the child. And you know, again, this isn't qualifying whether that's a good or bad parent. This is somewhat, you know, we're all in the classroom, aren't we? And, and we're all learning, we're all growing. And we can only do as well as we know to do. And uh, as you say, to acknowledge first, um, you know, I, I, there's a fine line between acknowledging failure uh, and remedying a situation by, you know, re, uh, recalibrating and, and starting over. Um, but is it actually failure if you have been able to take that half step back and acknowledge and find a different way and, and grow and learn from it? Is that a failure or is that in its own way a, a success? Um, it's in the acknowledgement, you know, and again, it's a very fine line. I agree. Yeah, I would say it's both a failure and a success. Yeah. Um, 
scientists throughout history had to fail hundreds of times before their experiment worked. So I think it can be both. And for me personally, and maybe not everyone feels this way, if I don't acknowledge the failure, I won't own the need to make a change. So I do think it turned out into a success. It's definitely made me a better parent, taking a step back and looking at that. And I don't mean better compared to anyone else. I mean, in my own parenting, I have parented my children better, taking a step back and saying, do I really want to handle this that way? But one thing I will say is I, I don't know that everyone spanks out of anger. I do think some do it in a very measured like I, I'm disciplining you now and this hurts me more than it hurts you right, kind of right. way. And um, again, I go, I think it goes back to the toolbox of what parenting skills do you have in your toolbox? And are, are there other ways to do this? Um, are there other ways to handle the situation? And so I don't want to delve too much into our personal situation with my son on the spectrum, but we do have a lot of behaviors from him that are challenging in a way that I I often say he keeps me on my knees before God because he is my most challenging child and often stretches me outside my comfort zone and outside my skills and my knowledge as a parent, even as a therapist. So that being said, we've had to employ help. So asking therapists to come work with him, asking therapists to work with me and his father, getting neuropsych on board to what's going on with his cognition that's creating these situations, are there ways we can help him? And I I do think though that's also, we have to go back and talk about privilege a little bit because I'm in a situation where I can easily access all that. Right, right. And and during a pandemic, it's even harder. And we're in a time right now where statistically, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, you would probably know more than me, but it seems to me that there are more children now than ever recorded in history that are on the spectrum. And, you know, and we don't know why we could presume, and and there are philosophies out there about why, um, but I, I, I think that it's, 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 it's such, I'm so glad that you are bringing this up because, uh, and speaking to your own experience, because I know that there are a great many numbers of families who are dealing with children, whether they know it or not, that are on the spectrum of autism. And that needs to be talked about. Absolutely. And I, I have my own theories as to why we're seeing it more now, diagnosed more now than ever. Um, one of those theories being, I think previous to it being an available diagnosis, a lot of people on the high functioning side of autism spectrum would be just considered quirky or right. maybe diagnosed as antisocial personality or something like that, schizoid personality right. disorder, rather than being on the spectrum. And it's still something we don't fully understand. With my son, we are fairly confident that the reason he is on the spectrum is because he was born prematurely by two months, spent a month in the NICU, and we could not 
do any kind of attachment parenting with him. I couldn't hold him for the first three days. I couldn't nurse him at all. And mm -hmm. so the neural pathways in the frontal lobe that are developed through attachment with the mother and the father were broken right. and were not then created even if they weren't yet formed and the way they normally would be. So his frontal lobe is just wired differently. And if, if you were to ask my 10 year old son, like, Oh, so I hear you're on the spectrum. What's that about? He would say, well, I was born premature and my frontal lobe was wired a little differently. So I don't understand empathy as well. And I can't read your facial cues. You're going to have to tell me verbally how you feel. Hmm. And so part of it is how, how do we, acknowledge that children on the spectrum and adults on the spectrum are unique individuals with beautiful gifts and talents and they function differently than those that aren't on the spectrum but i don't think that means they have to conform or right. even should attempt to conform i think it should be how are we inclusive to that exactly and we we are the ones that have to adapt right they are as perfect as they can be for who they are in the moment that they're in, right? Correct. And, Correct. and we need to support them in that. How do you work with um, with your other children who, um, I, I assume, they're, you didn't mention that they are on, on the spectrum, but um, I assume they're not. Um, how do you work with them in, in dealing with, um, or meeting is a better expression, meeting their sibling? where he is that's a great question um and it, a little bit involves all their individual personalities and i'll try to make that really short my oldest 12 year old daughter is an empath and she really struggles with what is my emotion and what is somebody else's emotion because she feels everybody's emotions all the time and, and she's still trying to figure out what's hers and what's theirs and with her we it's an open conversation with those two my youngest two are six and three and so their, their ability to understand a lot of this is limited just by development at this point. But my 12-year-old and 10-year-old, it's an open dialogue all the time. I, I mean, maybe this is one of the drawbacks of living with a mom who's a therapist, but like, how are you feeling? What's going on? <laughs> What's going on in your world? Do you miss your friends? Like, like this constant dialogue of how we're living life and how we're experiencing life. And so for them, it's a very normal conversation for my 12 year old to come to me and say, oh, my brother's driving me crazy. He doesn't understand boundaries. He's in my space all the time. And just reminding her, you're gonna have to be very vocal with him. And if he's going to refuse, if he's in a stubborn streak, you're gonna have to come get mom or dad to help with that. And just a constant reminder of we're doing this together and you're very different. And with him, if she's displaying emotions and he doesn't know what's happening, remember you have to ask. If you're afraid of the big emotions your 12 year old sister has, you just have to ask, what are you feeling? Since you can't read that. And so them, it's really kind of a beautiful way for both of them to learn how to engage different personalities and different um, brain structures and how to engage each other when they're so opposite in those ways. The younger two, we are just really working on identification and regulation of emotions yeah. in general. Um, this past 
Tuesday was the first time, last Tuesday, not yesterday, was the first time my six-year-old even mentioned anything about quarantine. And he said, I want it to be a normal day. I want Magnus here. And Magnus is his best friend and also the son of my normal childcare provider. And it was the first time in eight weeks he had mentioned Magnus or the fact he was missing him. And before that, we were kind of blissfully going along like he was fine. Everything was normal with a six-year-old. No, he, it just took him a while for time to catch up and him to realize, wait a minute, I haven't seen Magnus in a while. So just helping him understand it's okay to miss your best friend and how can we best do some kind of online communication with two six-year-olds? What's that look like and how do we make that happen? And um, right. with my three-year-old, it's very much going for drives because she just wants to leave the house. She doesn't have a particular like, place she wants to go. It's just leave the house. So we do a lot of car rides, but with her, with them and their brother who's on the spectrum, they don't have a lot of awareness of what that means. They just, if we're dealing with a tantrum, for example, my 12 year old will take the two little ones and take them to her room and play with them. And she's naturally a caregiver anyway. And so that fits with her nature very well. And we never asked her to do that. She just kind of does that. And then we help regulate our 10 year old. And so that works beautifully, but all families might not have that either. Right, right. I hope you're going to write a book about this someday. <laughs> Do you have a plan uh, <laughs> on the other side? <laughs> well, I have two books I'm currently trying desperately to even get started. One is um, Reproductive Issues as a Practitioner, more of a manual. And my understanding is another one of your guests in a previous podcast is working on one of those already. So... I, I, I may just let let that go and read hers first. She's brilliant. Um, and then my second one is an experience from a client's point of view of dealing with lots of different reproductive issues. And so each chapter is like a case study, but the client is writing their own case study. And then mm. I'm kind of writing the therapist side of how we deal with that. But I would love to do a book at some point on all the trauma that I went through and like my previous generations went through and how the epigenics played out in me. And then how I see that bearing out in my children as I parent, that would be a really interesting book to write. I think it's, I've never heard of anything like that out there. And because epigenetics is such a new uh, frontier in, in understanding human behavior, um, you know, to to be able to look at someone's experience parenting with the awareness and understanding of the uh, the potential influence of epigenetics on not only your development as as a parent and as a person, but also uh, of your children and and future generations of your family. I think that's a really uh, really fascinating topic um and i and i do hope you write that book because it's uh it's something that again this unique time is giving us the breath and the space to to sit back and and think about these things and we'll be right back right after this introducing the newest member of the vox life family 
REM patch with OST, optimized sleep technology, balances your REM and deep sleep stages to encourage rejuvenation of the mind and body. No drugs, no hangover, just a great night's sleep. Visit dianedinkmeyer.voxlife.com for information. That's dianedinkmeyer.voxlife.com. All Vox Life products are available in the UK, Canada, and the USA. During this this struggle, um, we don't know what the future holds. As you said, we don't know a week from now what's going to happen. And and being in the moment with your family, with your children, as a parent, um, is a is is a challenge when we are in such a, a fearsome and fearful world. Um, how do you navigate that? And you and your husband together. Um, and include, please include self-care in that picture mm-hmm. <laughs> because that's a, a very important part of parenting that we haven't touched on. But um, it, it, I think it, it's, it's uh, related to what we're talking about. Yeah, so I hope at some point I can hear someone on your podcast who's a couples therapist and talk about how they're helping couples through this because I I find that's a really interesting picture of what quarantine's doing with marriages. Um, But I will say in my own personal marriage, my poor husband is a software engineer and about as introverted and and non-emotive as you can get. And so being trapped at home with a therapist, always wanting to talk about things all the time, I'm sure he's pretty ready for me to go back to work. But okay. <laughs> um, and I, I, I tease a little bit, but in, in seriousness, we've had many kind of fireside chats um, next to our fireplace where we've talked about, wow, what a unique opportunity for us to slow down and kind of rethink the path we were on. Cause we had lost touch with each other and with our kids on exactly where we were headed as a family. We were living every day doing all the things, but we weren't really, I thought we were planning, at least I was planning, but there wasn't any real communication around that. And so we've identified certain things during this time that will probably stick after this. And part of that is self-care. So for example, one of the things we're doing is called Takeout Tuesdays, where every Tuesday we go support a local restaurant Um, locally owned and operated by ordering and taking out a meal. And it's the day I take my kids out of the house and my husband kind of gets his alone time, which is part of his self-care. He desperately needs to be alone sometimes. And I take all the four kids, take them in the car and we go, I pick up my mail for work. We pick up our meal and we come back home. And part of my self-care is connection to the community. I need that to feel whole as a human being. So supporting a local business to me is part of that. Um, It gives my children an opportunity to get out of the house and kind of reconnect with the world around them. And it gives them a picture into who their parents are a little bit. And so there's multiple layers and that one simple action of let's go pick up, take out Tuesday. So we will be continuing that after quarantine's over. Um, But I, and I forget your question because it was a huge 
multi-layer question with parenting and couples and children and self-care. But I want to touch a little bit on the self-care a bit more. I think there's this illusion that self-care means like bubble baths, glasses of wine, trips to Fiji. I don't know, major things. And, and self-care can simply be, okay, how am I going to manage my bills this month? And sitting down and having a conversation, if you're part of a couple, about that. And, and, who, and identifying who do we need to contact if that's a struggle? Is there help for that? That can be self-care. Self-care can be, I can't really read a book right now because I don't have the attention span for it. And I have four children who interrupt me constantly. But I can listen to a podcast while I'm doing the dishes. Yes. So it can be just finding unique ways to meet your needs that don't look like the the means portray them to be. Right. <laughs> exactly. Sweet little steps. Right. And and those matter. Um in the in the next couple of minutes, and 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 you did answer the question. I think that um, you know, I I, I specifically asked about. Uh, self-care being at the center of, of, of the answer because uh, the way that, that we are able to be at our best as we perceive it to be uh, with our children is if we have taken care of ourselves. So that can't be minimized. That's a very, very important. That should be a whole other podcast episode, but just wanted to touch on this one after everything else. Um, what would you say now that we're, we're, nearing the end of our time. Um, what would you say are three takeaways from this conversation that you hope our listeners will glean? Okay. My first takeaway would be as a parent, knowing that within yourself, you have the tools to help your children. And that starts with just identifying how you're managing during this time. And the second takeaway being modeling that in an honest way and a healthy way for your children. And so in that way, you're living life together and learning how to be human together. And my third takeaway would be more communication with everybody. And that can feel a bit overwhelming. I'm introvert by nature and I'm also an empath. So everybody I talk to, it's kind of its own little journey for me. Um, luckily, as a therapist, people's stories are fascinating to me. So that kind of feeds a part of my nature, too. But it can also be draining. So more communication includes more communication with yourself. So that can include times of solitude as well. Or if you have a faith with whoever you worship, more communication. Um, one of the things I love about this time that I totally was not anticipating is relationships that I've made with people across the globe that are fascinating people who, if you look at us on paper, we couldn't be more different. But right. when we start to talk, just the little connections we have, it could be something as minor as we both have a love for Salvador Dali. Just little connections creates little points of humanity that keep us uplifted during this time. And I would encourage people to try to make connections outside what you think your norm would be. 
Absolutely. This is, you know, I, this is so important. And um, I, I have to say that one of the tools that I found when I was embedded in the hospital with my son, Cameron, um, after his brain surgery, um, he was in a vegetative state. And a friend of mine said, Henry, you need a break. You need to get out of that space and go and you know, have a different experience. And I said, there's no way I'm going to leave his side. And they told me about this virtual world, this virtual platform called Second Life. If you go to secondlife.com, you can find out about it. And it's a server that you download onto your computer. And you create a little avatar uh, representation of yourself. And you explore all of these artistically rendered photoreal worlds in a virtual reality space. And it totally clicked me out of my environment and sent me on not only a, a, a visual and, and mental vacation or staycation, as, you, as it were, um, but I got to meet people in real time from all over the world. It was like the world was flat again. I could have a, a simultaneous conversation around a campfire on the beach with someone in Korea, someone in Kenya, someone in Brazil, and someone in, in the UK. And I was in Minnesota. <laughs> you know? um, there are many, many ways now, uh, obviously not for everybody, um, but there are ways for a lot of people to think outside of the box and to reach out to one another and to build a global community of people who, who you can, you can pick up on, on the same frequency, you know, as I've talked about in previous podcasts, uh, Robin, I want to thank you so much for the time and your incredible perspective and experience. Um, I know that we're going to do this again and, um, uh, I'm grateful. I'm very, very grateful. Thank you. I just so appreciate the opportunity to come chat with you and learn more about you and what you're doing and your missions and just having further conversations. Um, like I said, communication. I just love the opportunity to have conversations with people. So I'm so very grateful. Thank you. It's so hard to do in, in this space of time, but again, we'll, we'll do it. We'll do more. We'll do it again. And um, if you are out there in Listenerville, uh, a couples therapist who uh, has some perspectives on how to help couples through this time, uh, please contact me. And there will be a link to Robin's website um, in the uh, description of the podcast, a direct link. And so um, if you have questions for Robin or if you want to uh, see if she's got uh, openings for, for new clients, then by all means uh, go and visit her at her website. Thanks again, Robin. And we'll talk again all right, soon. I look forward to it. Thank you, Henry. Be sure to join me next week, May 28th, here on The Lost Traveler for a very special episode on great sleep, health, and energy with personal energy and potential coach, as well as Global Presence Life Skills Ambassador, Mag Secretario. We're going to have a great discussion about all things related to sleep, so you don't want to miss it. You've been listening to The Lost Traveler with Henry Cameron Allen. For more information, please visit www.henryallen.org. 
Thanks so much for tuning in, and let's all keep striving for a better world. Thank you.